So we are back. I haven't had a podcast in quite a while, but uh, it, it really took me something to, to take me out of uh, that world and then come back into it because uh, you have a very damn interesting story. Dude, I'm glad. I'm glad that you <laughs> that, that you found it appealing. It's, it's funny because I'm busy as shit, and so are you. I, yeah. I understand it, right? But when you told me the story last time, it gave me goosebumps. It gave me chills, and I was like, this story has to be told. 20 years um here this september man and i still get the goosebumps so, when i talk about it so before we jump in sure give us a little background of what you're going to talk about well um almost 20 years ago now the queen isabella collapsed three days after 9 11 and it just so happens that i was there i was i was the i was on the vessel that brought in and saved the only three survivors. And that's what I was about to ask you. What makes you qualified to talk about this? <laughs> because I've seen stories about it before, and, and I even shared one with you, and you're like, no, they're missing a lot. Dude, yeah, it, it's this. Well, first of all, there was a gag order placed on, on the things that happened that night. So I, I shared that the other day, and, and a lot of people don't know what a gag order is. So just briefly touch on it. Basically, the, the during the court hearings, because there was, a, there was about a... And this is just a ballpark, but it was about a half a billion dollar lawsuit against Brownwater Towing and the barge company for the loss of life and the traumatic events that happened that night. Um, the judge at the end of the hearing placed a 20-year gag order on it, saying that uh, nobody was to discuss. It wasn't public knowledge as to you know the faults that were involved, the amounts of money that was recovered or paid. And um, the actual events that happened that night regarding, you know, some of the entities, the rescue vessels that were there, Coast Guard, and um, to name one major one, I guess, um, and the lack there of their performance. Interesting. So we weren't to talk about it. Um, 20 years is right around the corner. September 15th, right? September 15th. And I have been dying to get it out because i've seen some of the some of the documentaries that were made here locally i've seen some of the the media um coverage after the fact but nobody's ever discussed what it was like watching the cars fall into the water had anybody ever reached out to you specifically after immediately after the accident yes we were we were bombarded by media but the fact that we and our whole way of life had been attacked when the twin uh, towers collapsed that were hit and um, it over it overshadowed rightfully so yeah. the events that happened here so it was people were interested on what happened but as soon as they found out what oh a, a boat a barge hit it it fell all right we got it we covered enough of it back to 911 which was which was right yeah, which happened just a few days before. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so mm -hmm. we were approached a lot, and, and and we quickly faded into the mist, you know, of what was going on over there in New York. Nobody really seemed to engage much after the fact. It happened. Let's move on. Back to New York. We got this going on. Recovery, search. So no, um, 
nobody really, really grabbed us and said, hey, give us your point of view. You saw everything. You were there for an hour and a half before the first emergency vessel approached the accident site on the water. So the story that I have to tell is is super, super compelling, man, because what we witnessed affected all of the families that lost life that night, affected the three survivors and the four fishermen. I wasn't alone. I was with two of my cousins and one of their brother-in-laws. <clears throat> and we're all in our 20s, man, super, super young guys um, I think I was 21 or so and we just we were eager to get back to normalcy yeah you know my wife is still freaking out at home over 9-11 and, and we I had a little boy and what's the world coming to and and I had just bought a boat and that's really all I was thinking of I mean you got to remember where we're at on the map down in South Texas we don't feel the ripple effects as profoundly as people do closer to where things happen. Mm -hmm. So I was I was really eager to to get past 9/11 and to find some sense of normalcy and my normalcy at the time was was fishing. Um night fishing at that which might sound peculiar to some people but it, it's really done it's, it's super popular. My cousins call me up and says, Rob, you got your boat, man. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's go fishing. And none of the wives were up for it. None of as, the wives. As they wouldn't yeah, ever be. <laughs> yeah, never. Like, no was the answer. So so early on in the morning, um, the hopes of getting on the water were, were grim. You know, like, uh, there's no way. And miraculously... My wife changed her mind. She was like, you know what? Go. We just got the boat. We've, we literally just bought the boat like a week before 9-11. Wow. Had taken it out to the Laguna Madre just to test it. Right. Brought it back. Said, yeah, we love it. Buy a 17-foot Glastron ski boat nice. that I was going to buy for fishing. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, man. It looked awesome. It was like, Chinga, this boat's bad. I want this one. Um, but it wasn't a fishing boat. <clears throat> by no means and my wife made me buy it because the flat ones she said mijo will fall off of that you know our son will just fall right off of that we need to buy something we can sit in yeah and what difference does it make and i really didn't know how to answer her question so i bought the one that she agreed to because i was going to get to leave with the boat i truly believe that had we had a different type of vessel that night we would have been pretty much useless interesting you know um she changes her mind. She was like, you know what? Go. If the guys can go and you're not going by yourself, buy in. So I called up Leroy, my cousin, and said, look, I got the green light, man. And he said, let me watch. Let me ask my wife to call your wife. <laughs> okay, okay, tell her, tell her. <laughs> so we're, we're talking back and forth, and, and um, I get the call, and he's like, dude, I got a green light too, man. Let me call Roland, and if we get one more guy, it's on. Well, Roland's wife was like, well, yeah, but you have to take my little brother. Fine. You know, he's of age. He can hang. We know Tony. 
let's go. So we get the, we, you know, combine the efforts. You get the, you get the, you know, your stuff. I'll, I don't have a tackle box. You get, and then we, you know, we throw everything on this brand new boat that didn't, didn't have anything but the safety gear that I had purchased at Academy. You know, the boats come with a long list. Yeah. Get this, get this, get this. I stocked it. Um, before long, it's around nine o'clock at night and we're on our way up from La Jolla. Pick up Leroy in Edinburgh pick up Tony and Roland in McAllen, and we get on the expressway, man. Normally, Josh, everybody's just excited on the ride over, you know, like like just having a good time, super loose and relaxed, and, and for whatever reason that night, nobody had anything to say. The drive over there was, that's gonna keep up. The drive over there was It was weird, man, to say the least, you know. Um, Leroy was kind of hunched over in the back, kind of trying to get some sleep. He had had a long day at work. Roland was still back and forth with his old lady. I'm driving, and Tony was asleep. You know, there was very, very little conversation. And um, so I had thought to myself, man, maybe I forced this a little bit too yeah. much, man. Nobody seems like they wanted to come. But, you know, that feeling when you get into... South Padre Island or Port Isabel, and you can start seeing the lights of Port Isabel, and you start recognizing things, and for whatever reason, it just like, yeah. you inhale the beach, man, you're like, shit, all right, we're here, you know? And everybody woke up, and, and just life filled the truck again, and Roland says, dude, we need to fill up the boat with gas, you need to pull over, and I'm like, no way. I need to get to the bait shop, because none of us have it. We're night fishing, we're fishing on the bottom, we need this, this, this. And Roland's just like, dude, we're going to have to turn around, and, you know, on Pider, not Pider Boulevard, but uh, the Highway 100, you know, with the boat, and it's going to be cumbersome, and just, just pull over now, and, you know, we'll pull out and go straight to the, to the quick stop. But I knew they closed at 10, and, and, and we were cutting short. I get there, and um, I guess the manager, the owner of the quick stop bait shop right there, right on Highway 100. He's literally flipping his open sign to close. And I'm, dude, I just, we just drove all the way from La Jolla. Help me out. And he's just bothered by me, man. I can tell. Bothered by me. Like he wants to get home. <clears throat> and he stands up, you know, because he was kind of hunched over, flipping the thing over. And he looks up at me and he goes, like, man, I'm going to let you in, but you have to pay me cash. I'm not going to do this. And, and I'm only, I only have Frozen, and he's, like, super upset, dude. And I'm yeah. trying to kind of break the ice with him. And I'm just there bullshitting with him, kind of like, hey, you know, like, where should I fish? What should I do? You know, what I've never used this bait before. You know, what? And his demeanor completely changed. And he went from being kind of rigid and angry and upset at the moment because I was taking his time to incredibly specific and mm -hmm. informative. And, and I, it sticks with me still to today. You tell me, look, man, um, just chop that up. Whatever I gave you there, just chop it up, put it on some big hooks and 
And what you want to do is go directly under the causeway. Not right on the channel because you have boats going through there. Pick the side of the channel and just tie yourself to the pillar. You're not going to be able to anchor on the floor, man. It's just a little too deep. He said, so tie yourself to that concrete pillar and just drop that bait all the way down the floor. And you're bound to catch something, but stay under the causeway tonight. And I dismissed it just as he said it. Because I wasn't being sincere, man. I didn't got his opinion at that moment meant nothing to me. Yeah. I knew where I was going. I knew how I was going to use the bait. I just wanted the guy to loosen up because, yeah. you know. <clears throat> I walk out, don't pay a second thought to what the guy had just told me. Um, hop in the truck, pop the U, go fill up, off to get the boat into the water. Normally, Josh, I would get into the Laguna Madre like my Uncle Leonard used to do, and we'd go, I guess it's north, um, as far out as we could, and we would use the causeway streetlights that are, you know, on the causeway as our compass or as our beacon way home, you know, because sometimes the fog would come in, sometimes it gets just too dark, and you get turned around out there. But if you could look to the south and still see the cars and still see the streetlights of the causeway, that was the way home. Yeah. Well, once we got into the Laguna Madre, and as we were heading towards the causeway, because we docked on the KOA side, mm -hmm. so go over the bridge, park at the KOA, put the boat in the water. Um, dude, it's dark, like eerie dark in the Laguna Madre. Like you have that little glow that's to the that the that the island is kind of emitting out and onto the water, and you have another little glow from Port Isabel. But when you're in the Laguna Madre, it's dark, and I begin to notice that the cars look like they're floating, like they're like they're flying over the Laguna Madre, not that they're being carried you know, by, by the Queen Isabella Causeway. This is because all the lights were out. Yeah. So you could see headlights and taillights every so often on the bridge. And I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to do what my Uncle Leonard used to do. We weren't going to be able to leave because I was afraid to get lost. Yeah. It sounds dumb to some people because like, well, you know, you got your channel markers and you got this. But I didn't, I wasn't that informed. When I went, I was always a passenger. This was one of the few times that I had gone out as a captain of my own boat, you know, with with people that I'm responsible for. Yeah. So I was screwed. I was like, wait a minute, what? I don't want, I'm not going to go out to where we normally go out because I don't know if I'm going to be able to find my way back and make a long story short, the words that that bait guy had just given me flashed in my head, just tie yourself under the causeway. And it just seemed like the perfect alternative. Yeah. It was super dark. I had this ugly feeling in my stomach, like, man, I'm gonna go get lost. I, I had a little bit of anxiety. If I tie myself to this structure, I don't have to worry about going anywhere. We'll fish for a while. We'll figure it out. So I did exactly that. Josh, on everything that I love and hold dear in my life, what I'm about to tell you is 
true. Right before we get into that, some people, you've been carrying this around for 20 years. So yeah. could it be a possibility that you forgot a lot of things? And we had this conversation because I wanted to get the validity of it. But you told me something with your PTSD that you had to do. So talk about that first before we jump into this. After, <clears throat> after the incident, after that night, um, the smell of gasoline or even the sight of taillights lighting up as people press down on their brakes on the highway would would trigger something. It would put me into a state of immediate anxiety. Um, not so much a panic attack to where I can't breathe and I'm kind of out of control, but but a panic attack in the sense that my, my, my hands would get sweaty. I'd start, you know, kind of feeling a lack of oxygen flowing through my body and, and it would just take me to that moment. Um, during the process of the court hearings and the trials, it was suggested by the, the court and the attorneys for those of us who witnessed what happened that night, um, begin to see a therapist, which I did. And his suggestion to me was to begin to write things down and to, to document as much as I could my memories and how they made me feel at the time and um, things, things of that nature, you know, just jot down what you can. Um, he told me, I'll never forget, he told me, he says, because the mind is, is, is like a, a safe, Robert, he says, and if you, if you hold things into the safe, you hold them and you hold them, and you never open the safe and you never bring the stuff out to look at it, eventually you're going to forget what you had in it. <clears throat> and then you get to the age to where it's difficult to unlock that safe and open it up and, and reminisce or look through what you left there. He said, so you have to, you have to give it to the universe on something tangible. And then you can take that tangible item and put it into a safe that I can drill open. But if you, if you lock it up in the safe of your mind, you're done. He says, you're done because it'll, it'll, it'll change and it'll alter and it won't be the same. So I, I did exactly that. I started writing it down. I started typing things down and, and, um, and it became a journal, a ledger, and, and eventually a, a short little book. How long after the the whole thing did you start writing this down? Maybe 45 days later, okay. 45 to 50 days later. Um, I was living in Mission, still at the same house, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to work. Um, the It's weird because you, we as everyday people don't, realize how tormenting a question just a simple question can be like why couldn't i save more yeah or or why did that person survive and and not others or could i have done something different questions like that can eat at your soul um and they do so this therapist would tell me the mind is a super, super deep, dark hole, and it's a, it's a, you know, um, cubic inch wise, it seems very small, but it's the biggest, darkest hole you can go into. So, what we think in our minds 
is difficult to combat while we're in our minds. He said, but if you say something that is disturbing you mentally out loud and you give it to the universe and your ears hear it, you'll process it differently. And he said, so I urge you to write it down because if you don't have the heart to say your fears out loud or if you don't have, you know, the just the knowledge that you need to do that, maybe if you write it down and then read it out loud, it'll be better. It worked. It worked for me. I let out all of those thoughts and images and um, feelings onto paper. I remember he would read them to me and, uh, and then ask me how I felt about it. And before long, I just, uh, it was just like reading a book or a story that wasn't mine. Interesting. That, that I, found a, I found a way to detach myself from it by hearing somebody else tell me my story. And I've associated with it that way since. So <clears throat> I can say that with certainty that my memory is still very vivid and it is as accurate as what I wrote down 20 years ago. Um, so people have asked me that, well, Robert, are you sure you said that exactly? Are you sure this is the way it went? And, and my answer to them is always the same. This story was meant to be told. I think that's why the gag order was placed on it. Interesting. And I think, and, and, and I don't know how it's going to come off, but I think I'm the one who was meant to tell it. Therefore, I've felt this way since it happened. So I think that I have gone out of my way to preserve my memory of those nights by sharing it with my children, my wife, my family members, strangers. You and I just recently met, yeah. and, and I was eager to give it to you. I think that, um, that I was meant to tell the story, and I think that I've known this forever, since it happened, and that's why I have held on to the minute details of everything that happened that night, from from like the mosquitoes that I told you about, yeah. man, from just the, the, the smell of things, everything about that night is ever present in my day, all day. Wow, so here we are 20 years later, tell us. We, um, we tie up directly under and tie to the pillar that is going to be struck 45 minutes later. And we begin our fishing. Finally, the bait is on the hook. It's in the water. Everybody has their drink in their hand. Oddly enough, that night, there was no alcohol involved. Wow. None. There would have been normally of my uncles. and But that night, we were in such a hurry. We were going to get it at the gas station. We were, it just didn't happen. We had a couple of 
bottled waters and i think somebody was mad because there was an rc cola and who drinks rc cola still and i was like i don't know and we were just there hanging out leroy's sitting in the front of the boat his brother's somewhere in the middle and uh, tony and i are way on the back we each got our little corner baits in the water and you can hear the traffic on the bridge above us boom 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 Boom, 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 boom. And we're all kind of just listening to that and the little clicking of our rods and reels, you know, just kind of listening. And everybody was thinking it, I guess, because, or everybody was really, really in tune with the beat of the tires on, on the bridge because Leroy from the front, out of nowhere, just says, Hey man, what would you guys do if cars started flying off of the bridge? Wow. <laughs> and and looking back, thinking about saying that right now, I'm convinced that that we were being prepped for was a, what was about to take place. Roland's answer was, or my answer, I take it back. I said, man. I'd have to recognize a car to drive in. I'd have to like see my mom or I ain't risking myself, man. I'm sorry, that's not happening. Roland comes out with his very analytical answer like, well, no, you know, it, you, we would, uh, an 18 wheeler would have to take out the railing and for a car to fly off of that. And he starts getting really technical, you know, and then he says, and at the end of that, what are the chances of that happening, man? And Tony, who hardly speaks, says about the same chances of two planes flying into the Twin Towers, man. Wow. You can ask any person that was on that boat during that conversation. They will recite it to you, just as I did now. We were all, it's, it's, I feel this. We were all being prepped for what was about to happen. We weren't catching anything. And the noise of the bridge started getting too rough, too loud. Just it was the relaxation part of the fishing trip wasn't there anymore, man. We had taken a turn, conversational turn for, you know, what happens if cars start falling in, we weren't biting, let's move. So I jump onto the pillar, untie my boat, hook my anchor back onto it, get back on my boat, and we move north about... 100 yards, maybe. And I drop anchor. <clears throat> and we begin to fish again. Shortly after that, we still hadn't caught anything. There was really no reason for us to continue to fish at this point. We had been out there. Whatever we threw into the water was eaten by the fish, but we weren't pulling anything out of the water. And out of nowhere, this sound of metal just grinding up against concrete. Like, a, like I told you last time, like a shovel almost, just being dragged, viciously dragged up against a concrete floor or a driveway, echoed. Like you could hear it like if it was just right next to you. And 
everybody kind of just turned and looked at at opposite directions because you really couldn't tell where it was coming from. And finally, somebody says, what's that? Is that rain? And we all turn around and we look at the, at the causeway. And there is a torrential just downpour of water just raining down on, on this one section of the causeway. And it puzzled us all because the skies were clear. It was dark. It was, you know, where did this rain come from? And we're all looking at it and there's no cloud above it when the first car that flew off of the causeway that night comes off the bridge. Wow. And everybody just gasps. Just voicelessly gasp, like you couldn't yell, we couldn't. It was just fear. Look at that. I'll never forget that feeling of helplessness, of wanting to reach out and catch something, and you just can't get there in time. You can't catch it if you were. Look at that. Because it's with me every day, man. The lights cut through the rain. I can hear the engine roaring and the taillights flaring where the person in that car was stomping on the gas pedal, on the brake pedal in desperation. Wow. The rain wasn't rain at all, man. The chunk of highway of the bridge that fell slapped the water so hard that the splash cleared the 87-foot causeway drop, the 30-foot light poles, and then some. That's how high the splash was. Wow. It was like a miniature tsunami that just rose. And it was so high that it was taking it so long for the water to come back down to the Laguna Madre that it looked like it was raining that night. The bridge was out, and there wasn't anything we could do about it. My initial instinct was, or my initial thought was, that we were being attacked. 9-11 had just happened. The ports were closed. And the Queen Isabella had carried me to South Piedra Island and back safely my entire life to see something that monumental, that big, and see it so damaged was, it was very traumatic, man. Because like, it's something that you don't think could ever fall. It's yeah. something that you trust with your children, with your pets, with your family. Every time you get on that bridge, you think this is the safest bridge there. The safest bridge I've ever been on. I've gone all over it 150 times in my life, or better. And now she's broken and hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging cars into the water. Um, I wanted to get the people on my boat safe. Was it selfish? Yes. My cousin Roland said, Robert, we got to go over there and help, man. And I said, uh-uh, 
I'm taking you and you back to my uncle and my tia. I'm not going home without you guys. I literally thought that we were being attacked because after the first car went into the water, a spotlight, huge, huge, like a train light from the barge who had hit the bridge, tried to shine the light from the boat to the causeway bridge where it was out. I think his efforts were to let people know that the bridge was out, to expose the gap because it was so dark. The current pushed the boat into an angle to where they just couldn't get the light to the opening. So what was happening was that people were on the bridge seeing a light shoot out from the Laguna Madre straight up into the sky, and that had their focus. Wow. And it just so happens that it was the highest point of the Laguna Madre's bridge, I'm sorry, of the causeway. So while they're driving up, looking at a spotlight coming, a huge ray of light coming from the Laguna Madre, it diverted their focus there. They couldn't see what they were coming into. And nine cars went into the water that night. Wow. We are still debating, Roland and I. I'm sitting in the captain's little chair on my little ski boat, and he's standing behind me with his, shoulder, with his hands on my shoulder. And back then, I used to shave my head, completely bald. And I'll never forget that he, Roland, was so calm. That son of a bitch was calm. It was eerie how calm he was. And he kissed the top of my head. Literally just kissed me. And I said, Robert, calm down, man. There could be children in those cars. We need to go, we need to go help them. And I looked up at him and I said, Roland, can't you got I have to bring you back to your mom and dad man like we we're gonna go in and come back out and he said let's go and he turned around and started throwing everything off my boat reels pin reels rods ice chests everything to make space to make room because the boat was not a large boat we We get, we get going towards the, <laughs> the accident. And cars are just falling in and Roland opens up this safety bag that I had just bought at, uh, at Academy <clears throat> and pulls out these flares and starts passing them out. And we strike them and we start just waving our hands up in the air, trying to get the bridge's attention. And we're desperately all yelling as if the people in the cars could hear us. And with every yell at a car, there was an immediate silence when the car's tires came, come off the bridge. It's, ah! And then another, wait, and ah! And that pause is what I have with me. Wow. Um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. That that sense of 
of uselessness. There's nothing you can do but to watch this happen. And it seems like everything slows down during that time. Like you're meant to absorb that negative traumatic energy that's happening. That's why I think it slows down so much. That's why I think I remember so much. Finally, somebody on the causeway sees us and uh, gets off of his car and starts yelling at us if we're okay and we get to yell back at him. He can barely hear us. The bridge is out, the bridge is out. That individual must have seen and acknowledged what was going on and he's the one who ultimately stopped the traffic. But by that time, again, nine cars had gone in and we were the first ones on the on the scene. And the cars that, that went in the water were coming from, Port, from South Padre Island side. Every single car that met the water that evening was coming in, coming back to Port Isabel from South Padre Island. Any traffic going to South Padre Island had a clear, visible view that the bridge was out. So coming, if this here is uh, Port Isabel and you're coming this way to the island, the gap looked like this. So if you're coming up, you could see that there was no more road for you. Mm -hmm. The people returning to Port Isabel coming home couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. Plus, there was a ray of light on the opposite end that I know had their attention. So between no street lights on the causeway, completely dark night, you can't see the road ahead of you, and there's a distracting beam of light coming from from the Laguna Madre. These people didn't have a chance. They didn't have a chance. We pull up to the gap, and um, the gap in the bridge is enormous. And there's this big chunk of concrete still just holding on by rebar and stuff, just kind of hanging. And we begin to look. We begin to yell and scream for survivors, jumping in the water thinking that we were experienced enough or, 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 or capable enough to, to swim down, to go get somebody. And, and the truth of the matter is between the current and the lack of visibility, there was no way to get to anybody. Three individuals survived that night, that accident. Um, Bridget Goza was the first person we found. <clears throat> we could only see and scout for survivors whatever light my spotlight allowed us. So take a dark room and get yourself a spotlight and try to find an ant. And that's the only amount of space you have to look for at a time. That's what it felt like to us. And every time the boat moved or the light moved and you thought you saw something that was either debris or clothes or something that flew out of a trunk or a pickup truck, there was things in the water. And then we, we, we heard a voice. We heard a woman's voice. 
And there she was. Bridget Goza was the first person that we recovered out of the water. She was convinced that she had caused the accident. Utterly convinced. She said, what did I do? Oh my God. She just thought that she had caused the accident. Um, and she was in and out of hysteria. You know, she would just... I tell myself, I think that she would relive every so many minutes the fall because she would just start yelling or, or start you know really freaking out at one point she jumped back into the water off the boat once we got her on uh my boat and she was calm and we explained to her that we had to continue to look for people we heard another person floating <clears throat> on his back and uh, this was uh, Mr. Morales. At the time, he owned the restaurant Bigos or something. I think there was like Senor Donkeys now. Or, mm -hmm. But that was his place. And he, he lived in Matamoros. He was our second uh, individual that we found on the water. It was really hurt. His knee was, and his leg was really bad. And he was holding on to something to float, but it really wasn't a floating device. So we threw him a floating ring or cube, or I forget what it was, but it was, a, it was actually a floating device, and, and he wrapped his arms around it and laid on his back. And the reason we did that was because Bridget had just called out that she had seen somebody else. And it was consumed time trying to get this injured person because it, it, it takes a lot to pull dead weight out of the water and into a boat, especially a boat that's a ski boat that actually has like a little ladder in the back for people to climb on because of how difficult it is to get on these yeah. things. So at that moment, we had to decide whether or not to allow the person who Bridget saw get further away from us due to the current while we try to get this guy into our boat, or do we give him a floaty, flotation device and head to go tend to this other person who was drifting away from us? Um, the decision was made in a split second to toss out the flotation device to him to make sure that he had possession of it and to leave him there. And we did. We chased a voice and chased what we thought was uh, another individual to no ends because uh, we couldn't find that person anymore. So after we exhausted about five minutes and we could still hear Gustavo Morales out on his flotation device yelling in fear because he thought we were leaving him or something, we gave up the efforts for that other person and we made our way back to Gustavo. Once we got him into the boat, <clears throat> he, uh, he passed out. He, he, he passed out and... I, I think that it was the pain because his knee or his shin splints were broke or something to that effect. When Bridget 
heard or saw something in her peripherals again. And this time the rest of us did too. So I brought the spotlight over to it. And there was a, a lady, very, very visible lady who seemed to be waist deep in water, <clears throat> waving her hands, but not both, not frantic, just kind of waving. Um, the bay was chopping. And I have a speedboat. So what happens with the speedboat, or any boat really, is that since the motor's in the back, when you gun it, when you give it a lot of gas, the boat tends to lift up from the front. So if you can imagine, I'm holding a light on a specific spot in the water. And I gun it. The boat comes up, so does my light. But when the boat plateaus back even, I couldn't see what we were looking for anymore. I had lost this lady. That feeling of panic that, oh shit, I made a mistake, I did this, and now I can't find her anymore, was something I didn't want to live with. So we looked frantically and everywhere, and finally there she was again. And everybody saw her because we were all on the edge of the boat with our heads hanging over like dogs outside of a car window looking for something. At, at this point, how many people were on the boat? There's six people on the boat myself both of my cousins roland and leroy roland's brother-in-law tony bridget goza and hector morales hector wakes up <clears throat> he's in pain you know he's yelling and that's distracting and um roland sees her again there she is there she is and i pop a kind of like a u-turn and we're headed straight for her when she just sinks under the water. Within 20 or 30 feet of arriving at her, so to see her so close, and it looked almost like if she just sank or if she was pulled down, was the worst feeling ever. Because there it is again, that helplessness. People don't talk enough about how that can impact you. Some things aren't meant for our control. Some things aren't meant for us to do. So when you feel that helplessness, those are those things. Somebody passes, you're not a doctor, a surgeon, a priest, there's nothing you can do. So people don't realize that that helplessness that you feel when somebody dies or when somebody something's happening that you have no control over, that's what brands us, man. That sensation is so unsung nobody ever talks about it. i felt you hear i felt so helpless but that's it that's where it ends but no that kind of helplessness is something that penetrates you and you bring with you and you keep it and you feel like you're lacking for the rest of your life when there was an opportunity to do something that you couldn't do you, you just couldn't perform she goes under the water man and we get to where she was and I, you know, I pulled the throttle back on the boat and we're just there kind of hovering in an empty space of water, looking around frantically, shining the water, shining the light into the water. Maybe we can see her. When my cousin Roland says, look, and there's this guy, a young guy, floating face down in the water. 
just feet from where we thought we had seen her or where we had seen her. So the efforts to find her were exhausted. There was another individual that was face first. At this point, we thought he was, he had passed already. Roland and Leroy spare no time and they're in the water like dogs after a duck, man. Like they're just in the water and I'm still, the, mo the motor's still running. And I shut off the motor because I'm afraid the boat's going to, you know, spin around or something, hit them with the propeller. I don't know what's going on. And before long, they're bringing this, for all intended purposes, lifeless body into the boat. And he was, I'll never, it's weird to remember, but he was dense. Like, wasn't a, 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 a scrawny person or a super built person, but he, the, the weight of this person was massive. He, didn't, he wasn't bigger than me. He just, it just seemed like we were pulling a boulder out of the water because it took us about five minutes to get him in comfortably. We realized he was alive when Roland and Leroy flipped him over and tried to get him on the boat, he let out a cry that would just wake the dead, for lack of a better term. And it scared everybody. He was in tremendous pain. His back had been injured in multiple places. He had a gash um, in his forehead that was just bleeding profusely, running into his eyes. He was in a world of pain, and it was very visible. And he was vocal about it. The yells, the cries. Um, <clears throat> he's in the boat, and we finally, we finally get some sensation of relief because we hear this foghorn. About an hour and a half has gone by. We've been looking for survivors, jumping into the water, trying to go down, like just doing anything. When finally the Coast Guard vessel comes in to view. The Coast Guard station, Josh, is seven minutes away from where this accident took place. It took them an hour and a half wow. to get there. Every single emergency responder was late. All of them. There were none. By the time these entities were on the water, there was no rescue involved. This was a recovery job for them. We gave up looking for the other lady. We had already found another individual. We had exhausted our energy, our strength. Even our morale was just down because another lady was towed into the golf man. Like, we, we don't know what happened to her. To see that Coast Guard vessel was like, I reference it, you know, when we watch a movie and the troops are running away from somebody and all of a sudden the rescue helicopter comes in and it's like, we're saved, you know. That's what I felt, I think, to this day, man. What soldiers feel when those choppers are getting there, pick them up out of dangerous waters or dangerous places, they feel so relieved. I, I can only assume that the, what I felt, the relief I felt when I saw that 
was what they experienced. To our morbid surprise, the Coast Guard weren't there to rescue, to retrieve, to do anything but watch. I pulled up next to this Coast Guard vessel. Mind you, I'm in a 17-foot Glastron ski boat, and the vessel that they pull up into this accident is about a 50-foot to 60-foot boat. And from the water to where the people were standing on the boat, the Coast Guard man was maybe about eight, nine feet. Like, this vessel was huge. It was even too big to get near the accident. And I'm looking up at the, they pulled up next to us, and I'm kind of having to control the boat, you know, because the current and stuff, I don't want to bump into theirs, and I'm afraid still. I got injured people on my boat, and there's blood everywhere. And I look up at them, and I'm like, get, send somebody down here. I have these people so far. They're the only survivors. Your boat's not going to get close enough. Get them, and I'll go back. In desperate needs, you know, we wanted to help. <clears throat> and, and we felt we already had. We felt that we had already been of service and that they could continue to use us. But they were smug and arrogant, and and he shushed me. I don't know his name, and, and I couldn't point him out in a lineup anymore. But he shushed me and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do any of you have a lighter? I need a cigarette. Wow. And SOB tried to play it off as if what he was witnessing was something that he had dealt with a hundred times. The Coast Guard lowered a gurney to us. I'm 21. None of us have any medical training or experience. And they tell us, strap him in, strap him into that gurney, give him to us. So there we go, man. This guy's busted up in all kinds of places. And we lay everybody, we, I'm sorry, we push everybody out to the sides of the boat. I lay the gurney down. We bring them from the sofa seat of my boat onto this hard floor. And he slips and boom, falls down on the gurney. Yells out a cry again. We strap them in as quickly as we can, all the while. The Coast Guard's up there just laughing, smirking, like, hey, watch it, watch it with that guy, man. You're going to hurt him, you know. Just for all intended purposes, teasing us. I hope that this video finds the guy I'm about to mention right now. I don't know his last name, but I do remember his name was Chris. He was a Coast Guard member. And Chris jumped onto my vessel because he realized that we needed the help and that we weren't going to get any from the other gentlemen that were on the boat that he was on. So big props out to that Chris who, who, who took it upon himself to climb out of his boat onto mine and stay with us. He helped us strap in um, Hector and he helped us lift the gurney with Hector tied to it onto this vessel, this huge boat. It took every bit of whatever strength we still had left in us to do this. 
as soon as Hector was on that boat and safe, they were about to roll over a little ladder so that Bridget and the, and Hector, I'm sorry, and Mr. Morales could could climb up onto their vessel. And one of their commanding officers came out and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Get that gurney back on that boat. We're not going back to port. We're not going. We're going to stay here. And those people need medical attention. He needs to take them over there. Wow. That son of a bitch made the Coast Guard people get this guy in a gurney and transfer him back down to my small little boat and then directed me to the Coast Guard station that is on South Padre Island side and told me to go there because the helicopter was going to land there. Again, waters are severely choppy. It's super dark. And I have these injured people on my boat. But we listened because we had no choice. They were literally, we had to receive him. They literally just started putting him off the side of their wow. boat into ours. Chris said, I'll stay with you guys. Let's go. And we leave. Because of every bounce that the boat would hit, every wave, every time we bounced, Hector would yell. It took us like 10 minutes, 15 minutes almost, to get to where they had directed us because he was in such pain. On that trip, we had flip phones back then. And like, I didn't have an iPhone, we couldn't text, we didn't do all that stuff. During that trip, that pain kept uh, Hector awake. It kept him alert. He asked me to call his father. He said, was, he could barely speak, man, but he, he said, call my dad, my dad, my dad. I had my phone in a Ziploc bag. You go fishing, you put your phone in a Ziploc bag, put it in the little crate, and little glove blocks. I pulled out my phone, and, and he recited his father's or his home number. <laughs> back, we, back then, people were still using house phones, landlines. And he recited it to me. And I called. Um, it rang and rang and rang. Obviously, it's like one o'clock one o'clock in the morning or something. And a lady answered. And right as I started to speak to her, she, it seemed to me that she was coming out of a deep sleep maybe. and She wasn't completely coherent yet. And she just heard my tone and my, the fear in my voice. And, and her natural instinct was to soothe it and just say, no, tranquilo, calm down. We'll, Everything's going to be okay. You're okay. Everything's fine. But then she would hang up. And I, and I would look at it. Hector and I told him, I think I just spoke to your mom. And, and she's, she's still asleep. And his eyes would close and he'd squint and, and he would cry a little bit. And he would just shake his head and say, no, you, you dialed the wrong number. You know, he couldn't really talk. I remember getting down next to him and saying, is this the number? And I, and I gave him every digit. And he was just nodding his head with every... And 
okay, I'm calling it again. And this lady and I conversed two or three different times before Hector lost his cool and just said, you're not calling the right number. And I gave up. I believed him. <clears throat> we get to the Coast Guard station and there is, um, there's nobody waiting for us. There aren't flashing lights of an ambulance or, 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 or wind being blown everywhere and debris everywhere because of the helicopters landing. Like we're by ourselves at a building that is glowing with orange lights and their port lights, you know, and there's nobody there. Like you get evident that nobody's here. But I was told by those people to come here, so this is where I came, and we pulled into the into the little port, and we get Hector off of the boat, and we lay him on the concrete, and we run to the door and hanging on the door, and we're here, we're here, you know, they call the helicopter, this guy needs help. Nobody comes, man. Nobody even comes to the door, Josh. So I come rush back to. I rush back to uh, Hector and and everybody, and I see that everybody's just swatting the air, and there's people swatting around Hector. And as I get closer, I realize that when we came in to the water, that water was very stagnant. It had become a cesspool for mosquitoes. Millions of millions and millions of mosquitoes were just hovering the air, creating a cloud. Like if you inhaled too profusely, you were going to swallow some. I mean, it was just the a most horrendous thing I had ever experienced. I get to Hector and I begin to shoot the mosquitoes that are already, already stuck to him, just sucking on it. Every time you'd swat your hand to kill one, you came up with three or four dead ones. Like it was, we had to get out of there. Sounds weird, but yeah, mosquitoes chased us away from what was gonna oh. be our, our, our safe harbor. I get in the water, I get pulled everybody away from that swarm, and off in the distance on Port Isabel side, the helicopter's landing. And Chris says, we got, we got to get over there, man. They're not going to come over here. I don't have a radio. There's no way to call them. We have to go over there. Well, duh, you know, there was no way, even if an ambulance was on this side, there was no way to get it across. It was just, it was an error. They should never have sent us there. We made a 15-minute to 20-minute journey from the Coast Guard on station from... South Padre Island, clear across to the south side of the bridge, the Queen Isabella Causeway, where Captain Murphy's uh, bridge thing or dolphin watch. Yeah, or dolphin watch. That's where, or that's the area that became the command center for all of the rescue vessels and all of the efforts that were being made. They all converged on that little dock. So that's where we went. When we got there, um, I pulled up to the dock and everybody was like, who are you, you know, get out of here. This is, you know, whatever. And I was utterly frustrated and I couldn't even bring myself to speak. Chris jumped on and he was in his 
Coast Guard fatigues and said, I've injured people that were in the accident. And all of a sudden it's as if we, it was as if myself and my two cousins and Tony just bleeped out of the picture because at that point they didn't care who we were. They didn't care if we were injured. Somebody had returned to their site with survivors. So we were left alone and pretty much neglected. We were able to get off, walk on the pier all the way to the concrete side of the bridge and we just kind of hung out there in awe of what was happening, just shock. Pasture Hyde from the, I think it's the Lighthouse Assembly uh, Church was on the site that night. Uh, he was there to declare, the to give the last rites to the people who had passed. And um, he, I remember he, he says, when he walked up to us, he, uh, he said, were you guys in this accident? We were soaking wet blood stains on our clothes. My nylon shorts had melted into my flesh because of the drippings of those flares. As we were driving, the flares were melting. And I didn't realize it until he pointed it out. He said, you need some medical attention, son, you're bleeding. Well, the plastic fibers or, or material of my shorts melted with the flare residue and resin and it melted into my skin. They had to pull the shorts off and patch me up. Like we were beat up too. Wow. Roland had several bruises and he was banged up, Leroy as well. We said, no, we weren't in the accident. We were fishing below the bridge when the cars fell in. I said it for the first time out loud to Pastor Hyde. And He looked at us and he said, can I pray with you? I've never been one to really give a lot of thought to religion or structured religion, but I've always been a God-fearing man. I had never felt so much comfort and sincerity from another human being as I did that night coming from Pastor Hyde. He prayed for us and uh, he said that uh, God had made us fishers of men and that what we had done that night was uh, we had become the Lord's tools, he used us. I don't know if that's true or not, but it made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, <clears throat> almost as if, as if I really believed it. He was excited for the life that we had saved, the lives that we had saved, and he was excited that somebody was there to help. And he rushed on over to go tell the authorities, and it backfired. He said, these are the heroes, and these are the guys that saved these people. The Texas Rangers, Homeland Security, FBI, um, we're all on the scene because of what happened in New York with 9-11. All the ports were closed. There was a small craft advisory that night. They didn't want anybody in 
the Laguna Madre, so much so that at 10 o'clock that evening for the 10 o'clock news, a small craft advisory was issued and supposedly all of the boat docks were supposed to have been closed. This was, by the time the bridge had collapsed, this was already common knowledge to the authorities. So what were we doing in the water? Right. We were taken into custody and escorted by these uh, government entities to the Port Isabel Police Department where we weren't um, interrogated viciously or, or treated as if we were criminals, but they did their job thoroughly. And they didn't put us into jail cells. What they did was they separated the four of us. My spot was a little broom closet, like a little, literally like a little pantry they put you in a broom closet yeah wow pulled a chair into it took everything out of it as quickly as they could just scattered it on the floor put me in there didn't close the door i remember they didn't because i said whoa don't close the door on me i'm super claustrophobic like don't don't close the door on me and he said no no we're gonna leave it open and as soon as he said that a lady with a little i don't know what they're called like stenographer yeah. or something i don't know pulls up and sits down right in front of me and the officer tells me it was with the Texas Rangers and he says I need you to recite to her everything you did and remember from the morning of 9-11 till right now not from this morning to now but from the morning of 9-11 till now I need you to rehearse everything from what you ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day to who you visited with and where you were. And so I did. <clears throat> and it took every bit of 45 minutes to an hour. Because with every statement, he would ask, and can I have that individual's uh, name, full name, and number? And so it wasn't just a matter of, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I had oatmeal, and then I went to work. It was like, all right, well... When you get to work, who was the first person that saw you there? You know, all of that. So it's pause, think, okay, oh, wait, no. I'd been up a full day before. This goes on for about 12 hours after we get into the Port Isabel Police Department. For about 12 hours from reciting everything to jotting everything down, handwritten, to another entity coming and putting a tape recorder and saying, all right, go ahead and tell us everything from 9-11 till today. So I had done this and I had given this statement and this story to three different government entities in three different fashions. And by this time, the fatigue and hunger and shock were overwhelming. And I said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer any more questions, man. I need, I need to eat. And if this is the way things are going to go. I, I need an attorney. This is very relevant, Josh, because they did it to all of us. Even the survivors had to answer these 
series of rigorous questions. And so there's legal documents? Absolutely. There are handwritten, there's transcripts, and there's recordings, all of which were made, um, will, will be made public information, I think, after the, the gag order dissolved, which it has. Um, this is a very, very important part of that night because all four of us who were fishing that night and on the boat saw the, the lady that I mentioned earlier. Bridget Goza saw this lady that I mentioned earlier. She was the survivor, first one. And Gustavo Morales witnessed and contributed in the efforts to kind of find her when we were all on the boat looking for this lady. She is ever so present in everybody's statement. This matters because they extended the search for this individual for two or three days after the accident happened. And they mapped out the Laguna Madre currents uh, tides, like they were really trying to find where this individual wound up, or at least to recover the body. On the third day, they they uh, concluded that there were no missing people, no missing persons filed. Every single person who went into the water that night, both those who perished and those who survived, were accounted for. So because of this, they wrote off um, they wrote off that person that we all saw. They said, well, I mean, maybe you guys didn't see what you thought you saw. There's nobody out there looking for her. And we have done everything and tried everything to find or recover a body. And that was it. That added to that helplessness. That, that added to, I couldn't save her. Nobody could save her. We all saw her. We were the last glimpse of hope for that woman to live the rest of her life out, and they gave up. Going back to the calls I made to Hector Morales' number that he would give me, after Hector is already tucked away in the ambulance and they're about to start offering him and rendering aid to him. I call again <laughs> and uh, no answer and then my phone rings. And it's a man this time and it's Hector's dad. And I tell him, sir, I just spoke to your wife I called a little while ago and she answered and I'm trying to tell her and he goes into this rage, dude. Like he starts, he's upset. And who do you think you are? And, and, and I can vaguely remember that I don't want to hear it. And I just start yelling at him. Is your son's Hector? Does he drive a red Mustang? Hector? Yes. Yes. What's going on? And then I venture to tell him again. I've been trying to tell your wife he was in an accident. 
His car flew into Laguna Madre. The bridge is out. The dad starts gasping for air. What are you, no, what do I do? I said, you need to get to the hospital. Your son doesn't have much time. I don't think he's going to make it. And I didn't. Scott is my witness. I didn't think he was going to make it. He, he's a miracle. Um, we hang up and that was the last I hear or speak to Hector's dad. <clears throat> my attorney gets here and pulls me out of the closet. Turns out that Roland's w wife at the time, one of the fishermen that was with me, was employed by Frank Enriquez. He called his wife and she sent her boss to represent us all. It's the first time I'd ever met him. I didn't have an attorney. I was 20-some years old. And so he's our nine shining armor, man, at this point because I'm starving and I'm burnt, I'm hurt, and I'm super fatigued but can't sleep because every time I close my eyes, there's something there I don't want to see. Um, we leave. And the story changes immediately because our attorney is driving us back to McAllen. My truck is stuck on the island side. My boat is, God knows what they're doing to it. It's just, I abandoned it. And my boat trailer is over there at the KOA. And, and <laughs> Frank Enriquez is driving us back and he says, you guys are heroes. You guys saved those lives and this is gonna be great and this is and he almost became a it almost seemed like if he was a talent agent or if he was a this or like he there was no sympathy for anybody in that suburban he was excited for us and at the time i was he transferred his enthusiasm right over to me. I was like, yeah, you know, wow, okay, so what happens now? You know, what do we do? And, and he started calling the networks and calling the, you know, newspapers. And so he, um, he started pulling all of those strings that I think would have naturally happened. Just organically, people would have reached out to us. But he took the lead for that. And he scheduled a, a photo shoot and a photo op about a week and a half after after the the bridge collapsed for the four fishermen to reunite with the three survivors. But this had to take place at the hospital because although Bridget literally didn't have a scratch on her, Hector um Mata and Gustavo Morales were injured and, and and needed medical attention. So we agreed to go and meet at the hospital where, where Hector was. We get there, Bridget's already there. Gustavo Morales has kind of like a cane because his legs in a brace or a cast, I don't remember. 
and we all reunite and Bridget's just hugging us all and, and thanking us and, and everybody's full of life and, and gratitude for being there, you know, because of what we had all shared. And Hector's dad comes out of the hospital room and says, who was the guy who called me? Who did I speak to that night? I raised my hand. I said, that, that was me. He and I understood, but nobody else did. How he spoke to me, what we said to each other. So when he was about to, what he was about to say, he wanted to say it to my face and say it to my eyes. He said, you kept telling me that you were speaking to my wife. That's why I was upset. That's why I yelled at you on the phone, Robert. My wife died two weeks before the bridge accident. And he pointed at the door that he had just walked out of and said, in this room my son's in right now. Um, her, for you to say that you were speaking to my wife, Robert, was disturbing. I thought that you were a child from one of the schools that I'm a principal at prank calling me. And I looked at him and I said, what? And he said, yeah. Who are you speaking to? And I said, I don't know. But a woman answered me and spoke to me with such a calm, soothing voice. But at the same time, it was vague and almost as if she was confused, like if she was just waking up. And he said, she died. She couldn't have answered you. She was. She died in this room my son's in a month ago. Yeah. I don't tell that story to a lot of people because people hear it and think, nah. But Mr. Mata, who is the principal at the Brownsville, Brownsville High School, if you ask him about what was said outside of that room, he'll tell you the same story I just did. We walk into that room and on the nightstand that is next to Hector was a little picture of a woman. And Bridget and Hector and all of us saw it and she just gasped and she said, that's the woman that we saw in the water. Wow. I'm borderline embarrassed to say that out loud sometimes because I think people think, Robert, you're full of shit. But it's written in the testimonies that we gave hours after the bridge collapsed in the custody of federal entities like the Texas Rangers, like the FBI and Homeland Security. That's written. We all saw her. Legal documents. Legal documentations that were written, recorded, were read. She, that woman, was alive in our affidavit so much so and she was so present that they extended the search for her for three days i spoke to a woman that night on the phone it is my sincerest belief that she saved her son that night wow i told my wife that story and she said i would do it for my son i'd come back from the dead for my kids I believe it, Josh. I do. Yeah. And and 
I've never seen a ghost and I've never had an encounter and I've seen and I write it all off as bullshit, but that lady's alive on our affidavits. Four, five, sorry, six different individuals saw her on that boat that night. She led us to that individual who was floating face down in the water. Her son was placed in the same room she had said her goodbyes to him a month prior. His mother had been with him the whole time. Wow. I can't wait to hold those transcripts and read them out loud, man. Because when they placed the gag order on everything, all of that stuff went into lock and key. But it's there. Um, it's real. Bridget Goza, Hector Mata, Gustavo Morales, they all lived it, experienced it, saw it. Um, I don't know if this is something that Hector and his father would want shared, but it's just as much my experience as it is theirs. Right. And um, we will be connected not only through the events that happened that night and the bridge collapsing, and, but we're always going to be connected through that, that knowledge that we both experienced something supernatural and we all collectively acknowledge that it's something that we can't explain. Wow. And that's justifiable enough for me. It's very, very, very interesting what you're talking about. And I hope we all are enjoying this because uh, this is not the last time we're going to do this. I think we're going to explore as much as we possibly can. We're going to go and ask these people. We're going to try to get them on, on camera, on film, if we got to go out and find them. I'd love it. We're going to do this because it, it, this is truly a story that, that needs to be told. And uh, I want to be part of it. Dude, I'm glad you're in. So, Gosh, as a, It's always a pleasure to hang out with course, you, brother. Man. Let's do this again soon, and we'll start reaching out to these individuals. Absolutely. So everybody, like I said, uh, join the podcast because we're going to explore this. We're going to see how far we can go. We're going to see how much information we can get and uh, see what happens from it because this is part of Rio Grande Valley history, and I think the story needs to be told correctly from the right people and uh, told the right way. So, uh, Robert. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And